Well, it's great to be with you again. Uh, you probably noticed in the bulletin, it says guest speaker, and that's partially true. I'm a guest speaker in that I'm not the usual speaker here, and I'm actually not on staff at this church, but I am a member of this church along with my wife, Gina, so I don't feel like a guest, although I miss church a lot because I, I work for the Northwest Conference office, so a lot of Sundays I'm off speaking other places. But it's always a joy to be speaking here, and uh, the more often I speak here and look at you and connect with you, um, I don't feel like a guest. 1988, Mother's Day, I was uh, serving a church in St. Petersburg, Florida, and today in our denomination we would call this a revitalization project. It was a church that, when I went there, the average age of the membership was 79 years old. And uh, so they had a Sunday school wing, but it had been locked for years. Uh, No activity in it. And I I went as uh, part of a group to help revitalize the congregation. So one of the things we were doing was trying to reach out to the many young families that lived around the church. And so after being there almost a year... Mother's Day was coming up, and and it was decided that a great way to connect would be to have a Mother's Day brunch, because we had, again, a lot of young families. A Mother's Day brunch, just to give uh, so many of these moms of preschoolers uh, a nice meal and a little bit of a break. So on Sunday morning, we did that early in the morning, and as part of that program, um, the director of the program had asked her husband to read scripture. So It wasn't a real heavy content programmed event. It was just a nice brunch, but she thought it would be good to read a scripture passage. Her husband actually was a very dramatic reader, and so she asked if he would read this passage from Proverbs 31, starting with verse 10. And if you've read Proverbs, it's the last chapter. It's the last section of the last chapter, Proverbs, and it talks about Uh, the virtuous woman and um, her ability to to multitask and her nobility and her strength. And so so Jan had carefully selected that passage. So her her husband got up to read, and um, he hadn't done this a lot as far as reading passages from the Bible. So he inadvertently got in Psalm 31 instead of Proverbs 31. So he stood up to read to this group of preschool moms, and here's what he said. My life is consumed by anguish, and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. I am the utter contempt of my neighbors, and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. Well, somewhere about there, he realized something seemed wrong. And so he paused and said... I'm so sorry, I'm in the wrong place. To which one preschool mom, with great passion and no reserve at all, said, you're in the right place, keep reading. (laughs) 
I introduce you to that section because what he stumbled into in the Psalms was a psalm of lament where there is crying and a pouring out of the soul. In the biblical culture, that was common. The presence of that kind of psalm in the book of Psalms reminds us that it is actually a part of our worship. For some cultures around the world, it's a more natural part of their worship. For those of us in the American church in the 21st century, it's often a foreign part to our worship. A few preliminary comments about that. In Scripture, there's definitely a message that comes from God that is triumphal. And it's a message that pictures God leading his people forward in triumph. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we are resurrection people. That's why uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is, is really our big day. Christ is alive, and the final picture of the people of God and of the world itself that he has created is a picture of victory, and it's a picture of abundance in the very broadest sense of that word. But throughout Scripture, running alongside that story is the concurrent reality of living in a fallen world right now where there is suffering, and suffering for the just and the unjust. And when Scripture brings these two together, the victory and the suffering are all part of the story in the same way that when you tell the gospel, you have to talk about crucifixion and resurrection. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul, talking about his own passion, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Well, at different cultures and at different times in history, including your own personal history, one or the other of those two themes, uh, suffering or victory, might be more prominent. It's really why it's important to keep reading the whole Bible over and over and over again so that these themes are brought together. We know that the American church has definitely emphasized in recent years the triumphal, often to the point of ignoring lament, this deep crying out to God. Well, that has a lot of ramifications for our theology, both our written theology and actually how we live out our Christian faith. When we come to see suffering as something that you have to hide from, or be embarrassed by. When you begin to think, if I'm a, a faithful Christian, I shouldn't have any problems and I shouldn't be suffering, your theology is going off track. The psalm that we're going to read today is one of the reasons that so many people are drawn to the psalms when they're going through hard times. Because there is a giving of voice to suffering. There is a giving of voice to unanswered questions that are normally a part of suffering, and it's woven together with worship. The simultaneous recognition of the reality of suffering and the reality of God being present. So let's read Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, 
so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I, or when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my God, or my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my God, my Savior, and my God. As that psalm begins, as the deer pants for streams of water, some of you may associate the beginning of that psalm with a worship chorus that was actually kind of on the front end of worship choruses when they were introduced to the church a generation ago. And that chorus began with those words, as the deer. Uh, you can tell it was an old worship chorus because it went like this, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. It was an interesting position of this panting and longing for God and a heart that desires to worship God. It's a very important combination of things, connection between lament and, and praise of being drawn to God. The opening verses of Psalm 42 paint a picture of the psalmist being dry inside, dry at the level of the soul, and feeling a bit distant from God. My soul thirsts for you, God. Where can I find you? I want to meet with you. My tears are flowing, and there's this feeling of being abandoned, even to the point where it seems that others who are watching me would be asking the question, where is their God? This is not an obscure experience that the psalmist is describing here. The Lord has gone to great lengths to see that we understand that this experience, this lament, is a powerful way of coming close to the heart of God. In fact, these first verses remind me of the story of Job. That's one of the oldest stories in the Bible. 
actually Job is a, a story consistent with the early chapters of Genesis. So here at Maple Grove Covenant, we're uh, still in the middle of a series on Genesis. And Job would be a contemporary historically of those events in Genesis. And Job is crying for the same things the psalmist is pleading for. He is crying out, I'm desperate, I'm confused, I don't understand what is happening here, and I want a meeting with God over this. And throughout the book of Job, while he continues to talk and to sometimes rant, he's being drawn toward God. He's longing for this meeting with God. He's one who has loved God and because of that has always been drawn toward God. But now there's something different going on in his life that's drawing him to God. It's his suffering that's drawing him to God. He has an argument he wants to present. He has questions he wants answered. He is, uh, he is in a sense, in this super pursuit mode to get to God. It's not the easy way that Job is on. In fact, his way is so hard, uh, those around him, they have a hard time even looking at him. His, uh, his wife at one point suggested that he should just curse God and die. You can tell her sympathy had kind of worn out. Just get it over with. Use, use a few choice words to offend his holiness and your suffering will be over. Maybe he'll just strike you dead. Well, Job found out that that wasn't all that easy because uh, he just kept talking and kept talking as if he didn't have a lot of concern about whether he might offend God or not. And God keeps listening patiently rather than quickly striking him dead. He just keeps listening to Job his lament, his cries. And while he's not willing to curse God, he does want to express his raw soul to God and has some realization that God might be offended in this in some way. So in a way, he sees his wife's point, uh, what is there to lose? My life is so miserable, I'm just going to pour it all out, God. And if you strike me dead, so be it. It's that abandonment in sharing his heart. Job chapter 10 would be an example, verses 1 and 2. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. And in Job 13, he is very clear about what he wants, and he makes it clear to his human counselors when he says this. My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. So the psalmist in Psalm 42, like Job, is suffering at the level of the soul. And they both understand that my life now is not like it's been in the past. It's so different. In the past, life was good, and I knew where I stood. 
So you might remember the psalmist says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. The psalmist is saying, how did I get to this dry place? I used to be on the worship team leading people in the praise of God. How did I get to this place where my soul is so dry? Job in the same spot been a spiritual leader in his community and his family, and now he finds himself sitting in this desperate place. This crying out often sounds like speaking to your own soul, kind of a combination of speaking to your soul and speaking to God, and and at times you can't tell who it is you're talking to. You're simply venting. And it can be a mixture not only of talking to your soul and talking to God, but even a mixture of lament and praise. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed? And then phrases like, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is certainly a time to be talking and there is a time to be talking to your own soul and talking to God at the same time. It's an interesting experience. Sometimes when you're talking to your own soul in desperate times like this, you might even hear the Lord saying, yes, you're on the right track. Put your hope in God. The psalmist knows that is the way. Put your hope in God. There is no other way. In fact, at moments of desperation like that, it seems there is no other place to find hope, so you put your hope in God because there isn't another choice. Job said something quite similar in Job 13, verses 15 and 16. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Job keeps talking to God because he has no other hope other than God. And the psalmist keeps talking also. Psalm 42 again, verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? They keep talking to God. They don't walk away from God. They keep talking to God. What we see here is a combination of things that in our minds often seems like a contradiction. Crying out in agony, questioning what God is up to, and at the same time declaring, but you are my hope, Lord. You are my strength. You are my rock. I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know what I'm going to do next. My soul is disturbed. I put my hope in you. Because in our minds we think it's a contradiction, we try to avoid such conversations. 
what we might see as a contradiction is actually the power of lament that draws us to God and draws us into a deeper relationship with him and actually strengthens our soul. In the process, I I must tell you, it can also draw you closer to other people that you allow to be a part of your lament. But just as we see this as a contradiction and want to move away from it, during times of lament, uh, we frequently want to be away from people and away from God. Such times can lead you into isolation. It's not a time to walk away. It's a time to walk toward God. Now you can see from the psalmist words and from Job, I don't think there's any illusion that what Job is saying to God is perfect and that he's right in what he's saying to God or that the psalmist is perfect in expression of agony. Not at all. It's just honest. They're not perfect in their commands to their own souls. They're not perfect in the way they phrase their questions to God. But their desire for an audience with God is drawing them toward God. And he is well acquainted with grief. God does not run from grief. He actually runs toward grief. He runs toward the broken heart. Now, uh, many of you in this room know this. uh, Doing what we've just read about is harder than just reading about it. It's not being drawn to God and and vocalizing all of our hurt. This is often not our first reaction to a trial or a loss or a confusing set of circumstances. It's not our first reaction. More often, our first reaction is we decide um, we're going to try harder. We're going to make this thing work. Whatever it is, it's not working. Whatever it is, it hurts. We're going to make this thing work. And crying is often not considered because we live with the lie that if I can control my tears, I can control my pain, which is never true. Controlling your tears does not control your pain. Actually, it usually multiplies your pain. But we think, I'll try harder. I'll take control of my pain. I'll take control of this situation. Another common first response is to come up with the simplest explanation our minds will be satisfied with about why we are where we are right now. Whether that explanation is true or not, come up with the simplest thing that's at least plausible and try to move on and forget about it. Simple answer, which incidentally Job's friends were offering to him. They tried that approach. Simple answer, you must have done something really wrong to be in the kind of fix you're in right now. Solution, you just need to try harder. You need to get back in there and try harder. Bringing your pain to the Lord is an act of worship. Your tears are not unwelcome to him. 
And I would encourage you this morning to not be afraid of tears. Do not be afraid to bring all of your pain to the Lord. Since we're in a series on Genesis, and I've departed from this series, but I want to help you stay a bit connected to that series. Michael Card, a songwriter, has written a song recently called Older Than the Rain. And what he is saying in the song that's older than the rain is human tears. And his spin on that is an interesting one. That suffering and grief came to our first parents with sin. So if you go back to the Genesis series, you're in the garden, and then the time of sin comes, and grief and suffering move into the human condition. But at that point, according to the scriptural narrative, it's never rained. That rain falling from the sky is actually introduced with the flood of Noah. It's an interesting thing when we think tears are this unwelcome thing. That image that they are actually older than the rain. For me, that gives a lot of helpful pictures. When you think of God in response to the suffering and sin of human beings and all the pain and the chaos that, that came to this world because of that. It's interesting to me that God's judgment comes out as torrents of water coming from the sky. It's as though God himself, even in his judgment, is weeping. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there's another common image when people are sobbing and weeping in lament. It's something we don't do anymore. It's not part of our culture. It still is part of many Eastern and Middle Eastern cultures. But along with the sobbing is the tearing of garments. When Jesus, the Son of God, was the answer to our sin and our suffering, the one who, in fact, Isaiah 53 tells us, the Messiah would be the suffering servant who would bear our sin and our suffering on the cross. When that moment comes where the Son of God bears our sin and our suffering on the cross, an unusual thing happens that I know has many layers to it, but I'll just tell you there's a helpful image in there for me. Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51 and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, which is a way of saying he died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Isn't that an interesting picture of a, a grieving God? Tearing his garments curtain in the temple behind which was the very presence of God is torn and the God who understands grief even in the tearing of that garment 
huge curtain torn top to bottom. Only God would tear. No human being tore it. It didn't go from the bottom up. It went from the top down. This God who knows what grief is about, who understands our grief, again, Isaiah says, acquainted with sorrow and grief, grieves with us and actually invites us into his presence with that suffering. Put your hope in God. And I would say to you today, in closing, even if you're at a place where you see nothing in this world right now to put hope in, and some of you might be there today, you see nothing in this world to put hope in right now, nothing that seems reliable. I want to encourage you to rely on the one who is able to bring hope. Even as only the creator could create beauty and order out of nothing, it is only God himself who can sometimes create hope, even out of nothing that seems present in this world. When you walk out of here today and you look around you and, and you see all that has been created, remember where that came from. That came out of nothing. There's a Latin phrase that's used for that in theology circles. It's called ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created all that is out of nothing. When there was formlessness and complete emptiness, he moved in and he created all that is. That same God can be a source of hope for you and can bring hope, even if you think there's nothing for him to work with in doing that. Let's pray together. Lord, I lift before you my brothers and sisters gathered here who might be going through a confusing time right now. And maybe they are in the process of lament right now and this all resonated with them today. They've, they are there. There may be some here, Lord, who are in the spot of needing to lament, but they just haven't done it yet. Their soul has been shy before you and they've been moving away in their pain that you might bring them back today, Lord. Help them to pour their hearts out to you and put their hope in you. You are our only hope, Lord, both in the best of times and the worst of times. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.